And all of a sudden, we're all talking about whether or not it's okay for a few dozen people to hold some signs outside Brett Kavanaugh's house. How did a draft opinion upending 50 years of legal precedent devolve into a squabble about picketing suburban front yards? From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brandi Zdrasny. Also on this week's show, how to sniff out a moral panic over brand new tech. Once the radio was feared to ruin kids' brains, later it was video games. Now, it's TikTok. If a reporter just says it trended, where's the evidence? How much did it trend? Where did it trend? What made it trend? Plus, what happens when ordinary people unwittingly become the face of viral conspiracy theories? First they say, this is a misunderstanding and I can explain it. And then they start to realize that anything they do feeds into the pattern of harassment and invasive communications. It's all coming up after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brandi Zadrozny. My day job is as a reporter for NBC News on the misinformation beat. But this week, I'm filling in for Brooke Gladstone. And for our top story, the 98-page document that we've all been talking about since the night of May 2nd. Tonight, the nation's highest court confirmed the authenticity of this leaked draft decision of a ruling that would overturn abortion precedent in this country. Abortion, a perennial juggernaut of American politics, tethered to everything from privacy to religion to money to science. And even when the high court ruled on Roe v. Wade in 1973, There were clear signs in the coverage at the time that the issue wasn't going to go quietly into the night. The arguments will go on, because perhaps more than any other issue in American life today, the abortion question is loaded with the emotional arguments of life, death, and morality, not the kinds of issues a court can finally settle. The court of public opinion on abortion has actually been settled for some time. A 2019 Pew survey found that 70% of Americans said they did not want Roe overturned. But as you've watched the news unfold over the past two weeks, that public sentiment was not what was being covered. It was all about the political intrigue. I'm really interested in who the leaker was. The leak has sparked demonstrations and renewed a focus on who leaked it and if they committed a crime. Republicans say the leak was meant to intimidate the justices into changing their vote. This leak from the court is fundamentally destructive to the Supreme Court of the United States, to the rule of law, and to our Constitution. And none of these Democrats care. And decorum. The illegal protest, the illegal intimidation of Supreme Court justices, this is reprehensible. The Democrats, the left, they are the riot party. This is what they do. They are the mob. They don't petition the court. They threaten to or try to burn down the court. These thugs have no business at the private homes of any government officials, these Supreme Court justices or anyone else. Why are we arguing about leaks and protests? One answer could be that Republicans aren't doing the thing Democrats and abortion advocates did 49 years ago, celebrating. Here's Planned Parenthood President Alan Guttmacher. January 22nd, 1973 will stand out as one of the great days for freedom and free choice. This allows a woman free choice as whether or not to remain pregnant. This is extraordinary. A lot of political sociologists mark Roe's passage as the moment that galvanized the anti-abortion movement. So in 2022, the Republicans didn't celebrate publicly en masse, not even for a day. Yeah, it's really a fascinating turn of events when you think about how long Republicans have worked for this moment. Decades, really. And on the cusp of their 
great victory. It's as if they don't want to actually talk about the fact that they have won. Paul Waldman is an opinion writer for the Plumline blog for The Washington Post. And he explained that Republicans, despite their anticipated victory over abortion rights, are in a tricky position. Now that they've got their six votes and the conservative legal revolution is really underway, the more important it is to define it as apolitical. Because if you don't, then it just looks like, you know, one more partisan institution and it starts to lose its legitimacy. And questioning that sanctity of the court that threatens the court as it exists now. If the public starts to see the court as just, you know, an arm of the Republican Party that's echoing Republican claims and advancing Republican policy goals, well, then that opens up the question of how you might undertake some serious reforms. Maybe you should institute term limits for justices, which has been suggested. Maybe you ought to expand the size of the court. These are things that have been suggested but haven't really gotten very far. But if the court begins to look entirely political, then those things begin to seem much more reasonable and maybe something that we should seriously debate. That's a great threat because what the conservatives would like is to have everything kind of stay the way it is. They're going to get a lot of things from this court that they want and have wanted for a long time, not just on abortion, but on religious freedom, on how much power the government has to regulate, environmental regulations on, worker rights, all kinds of things. They're going to be receiving a steady stream of policy wins from this court. And so they would like nothing more than to have that train just keep running. And if the court's legitimacy comes into serious question, that's a threat to the operation of that system that they've worked so hard to put in place. Okay, so this is on the media. So (laughs) let's talk about the news a little bit. The stories are Democrats are upset about the draft opinion and Republicans are angry about leaks and protests. Are we covering it all as punditry and thus equating picketing justices' sidewalks with a fundamental altering of constitutional rights? There's an inherent problem in the sort of he said, she said style, which is the default for all news coverage. Almost everyone in the national media would agree that Republicans tend to be just better at unifying around a message. Once they figure out what they want to talk about, everybody on their side is going to echo that idea. And so if Republicans all start expressing their outrage that people protested outside a couple of justices' homes, that's going to be the subject of a significant portion of the news coverage, whether or not it really is all that important or even remotely as important as the fact that millions of women are about to lose their reproductive rights. And The other thing that happens then is that because Democrats are in this constant kind of defensive crouch and want to show that they are the party that believes in norms and civility and propriety. Well, in this case, you saw a a piece of legislation introduced in the Senate, which passed unanimously to beef up security for Supreme Court justices. And it's extraordinary when you think about the kinds of constant threats and violence that people who provide abortions have to deal with. Mm -hmm. You know, there have been 10 or 11 doctors and clinic workers who have been murdered in recent decades, bombings of abortion clinics. And we're all acting as though, you know, a few people protesting outside a Supreme Court justice's home is the worst thing that has ever happened to anyone. Well, but that makes me think, right? I'm thinking about the end game, the Republican end game here. What do Republicans get out of this moment right now? If you think about what the ideal outcome for Republicans is, it's that Roe v. Wade is overturned. They get the policy victory they've sought for a long time. And there's no political backlash whatsoever. And nothing fundamentally changes about the political situation. And they don't pay any sort of price for getting a policy outcome that is extremely unpopular with the public. And the Democratic base views it as inevitable and not something that you can do anything about, right? That's the ideal outcome for them. Is there a right way to report on this issue? Well, there's no perfect way to report on any issue, I think. We get very, very caught up, especially in the Washington media, in whatever is behind the scenes and looks like it's kind of backroom intrigue. And that's why the leak of the draft decision was so enticing to Washington reporters, right? Because you have this very kind of secretive institution and we get this little window into it and then we can speculate about, you know, was it a conservative clerk who uh, leaked it or was it a liberal clerk or could it have been one of the justices themselves? Mm -hmm. And we can go round and around on that. 
And that plays right into our perception of politics as just this big, fun game that people play. Mm -hmm. But I think that the reporting has to focus on what the actual effects are going to be, how people's lives are going to be impacted. How is America going to change once this decision comes down? That's an eternal problem for the media. You know, we always focus on what what's dramatic, what has video and pictures, what involves conflict. That may be the most fundamental bias that the media has is toward conflict. And is there a right way to read the news? You know, the media, like you said, likes conflict because people read conflict. And regardless of where you stand, how should media consumers be sorting through all of this? That's also an eternal problem. It's a lot to ask of people to sort all different kinds of facets of any issue and to seek out the things that are the most fundamental and the most consequential. That's a demand that almost no news consumer can satisfy, right? Well, we only have so many hours in the day. And even those of us who do this for a living can't necessarily learn everything, let alone somebody who has a, you know, a regular job. So that's why it's incumbent upon those of us in the media to give people the best and most complete view of an issue that we can. And so the message to people who are just reading this stuff or watching it on television is to just keep asking, you know, how important is this thing that I'm seeing? If we're arguing about whether people should be protesting outside justices' homes, is that really going to be something that in a week or in a month I'm going to care about? And then to ask yourself the second question, which is, okay, if I'm not, then what about this issue am I going to care about in a month or in a year? And in this case, it's what is America going to look like? What kind of access to abortion are people going to have? Try to focus on the coverage that gets to those more fundamental questions that you are going to care about in a month or a year and not so much about just what people are shouting about today. Paul, thank you so much. My pleasure. Paul Waldman is an opinion writer for the Plumline blog for The Washington Post. Coming up, a taxonomy of moral panics on TikTok. This is On The Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On The Media. I'm Brandi Zadrazny, filling in this week for Brooke Gladstone. Turn on the evening news and you're likely to be confronted with a deluge of reports of young people having their minds hijacked by TikTok. There's a new TikTok phenomena called the pee your pants challenge. The milk crate challenge is behind these recorded climbs of precariously placed pyramids. I mean, the number of, of hits on TikTok in the billions. Massive. In the billions. There are so many breathless reports of TikTok challenges, we could spend a lifetime trying to catalog all of them. They run from very dumb to very serious, from real to overblown to completely made up. On the media correspondent Michael Lowinger reviewed this genre of coverage, and he started to notice some patterns. Hey, Micah. Hey, Brandy. So what do you got for us? Okay, so I've been putting together what I'm calling a taxonomy of TikTok panics. I'm going to take you through a bunch of examples of reporting, some based on true things, others are made up or overblown. And I've gotten a lot of help from reporters and researchers who cover TikTok much more closely than I do. So first, I want to tell you about my conversation with Taylor Lorenz, who, as you know, is a reporter for The Washington Post. For years, I've reported on the false nature of a lot of these teen trends and how they emerge with new technologies. Videos of teenagers snorting condoms and then pulling them out through their mouths. Yes, that's right. This is a thing. Back in 2017, I wrote about how teens are actually not snorting condoms or eating Tide Pods or whatever people were saying YouTube was making kids do. Let's pause on the Tide Pods example for a second, which I think we can learn a lot from. It was everywhere. I mean, there were like 
school letters sent home to my home. Like, it it was a thing. They're popping detergent pods into their mouths and then posting the videos online. Much of the early hubbub was based on internet jokes and bizarre tweets, though there were a small number of YouTube videos that got a lot of attention. The local news coverage actually brings them into the consciousness. You saw people eating Tide Pods ironically because of the panic about it. Even accounting for that feedback loop, the Tide Pod story was totally overblown. Calls to the American Association of Poison Control Centers concerning laundry detergent cases were trending down in 2017 when the story started. And as the coverage spilled over into 2018, the number dropped to the lowest record since the Tide Pods were released in 2012. And the vast majority of these poison calls were related to children under five, not teenagers. A reminder that the amount of coverage doesn't always correlate with the size of the actual problem. So that's what we saw in the YouTube era of moral panics, which sets us up for what we're seeing with TikTok now. And so you started to see pretty much the same thing that happened to YouTube happened to TikTok, where it's like, look at what TikTok is making your children do. Which brings us to the first in my taxonomy of TikTok panics, what I'm calling the coordinated panic. It all started with an infamous trend called devious licks. A whole new destructive TikTok craze has teens stealing and damaging property at schools. We called devious licks, and students have been recording themselves vandalizing and stealing school property. The result is thousands of dollars in damage to schools across the Bay Area and the country, all documented for likes on TikTok. It's true that kids were vandalizing their schools, as kids have always done. But a lot of it was attributed to TikTok when it really shouldn't have been. The devious licks trend wasn't as well known until it was deliberately pushed to local outlets across the country by Facebook's parent company Meta, which Taylor Lorenz revealed in a bombshell scoop earlier this year. What myself and my colleague Drew Harwell revealed was that Meta had actually hired Targeted Victory, a well-known Republican consulting firm, to help plant negative stories about TikTok across the country in local news markets. Basically, Meta was tired of being the subject of constant public scrutiny and wanted to convince parents and public officials across the country that TikTok was the real menace. But here's a sort of funny twist. Rumors about devious licks had actually started on Facebook, not TikTok. Of course, the coordinated campaign to get local media to cover this didn't mention that. A bunch of state attorney generals have announced an investigation into TikTok and its harm on children. California Attorney General Rob Bonta announced an investigation to find out if TikTok uses special techniques to lure young users, causing harm to them. And so targeted victory and meta were very interested in pushing these negative local news stories in those specific markets in hopes of pressuring state attorney generals to take action against TikTok. Targeted Victory and Meta also pressured local outlets to cover the so-called slap a teacher challenge. Educators beware. That's the warning from the California Teachers Association, letting them know about a potential TikTok trend. So there is a list already written out. It goes month by month telling kids what to do and film it then put it on TikTok. The challenge for the month of October, slap a teacher. Slap a teacher hadn't started yet, but the idea was that there was a nationwide plan among teenagers to slap their teachers starting at the beginning of the month. And and this fake list of so-called future challenges had once again originated on Facebook, where it circulated in teacher and police groups. But you wouldn't know that from the coverage. There's not even a single example in these stories of a slap a teacher video. If a reporter just says it trended, where's the evidence? How much did it trend? Where did it trend? What made it trend? Yeah, it feels like the words trend and viral can be a bit of a cheat code for journalists because they don't require much proof. And it really does help punch up a story to feel more urgent. Yes, exactly. I think that's a really important point. And it's one that I heard from other reporters on this beat, like Ryan Broderick, who writes the Garbage Day newsletter. I think the scale of TikTok makes it very hard to judge whether something's important on the app. The views are so high on the content that people assume that it must matter. (laughs) You know, a trend of like four people doing something can feel like this massive movement when in fact it doesn't matter at all. Okay, so I want to move on from the coordinated panic stories to what I'm calling the rumor mill panic. Brandy, did you hear about last year's National Rape Day? 
I, I, I can't believe I've missed some of these, but no, I missed that one as well. This one is triggering for me. It really is part of what kind of pushed me into doing TikTok misinformation research in the first place. I called up Abby Richards, who has written a lot about how conspiracy theories spread on the platform. It's unclear exactly where this started. This idea that a big group of men were going to just go out and rape women, which is a gross misunderstanding of how sexual violence is perpetrated because most sexual assault is committed by somebody that the victim knows and often trusts. Like Slap a Teacher Day, it was unclear in the moment what the source of the concern was, but there was a rumor, and that is what set the app on fire. We really awareness videoed it into existence. All of the videos surrounding it were about like, oh, I don't know if this is true, but if it is, be careful. I don't know how many guys are going to be participating in this, but be extra careful. So get your mace, get your tasers, don't go anywhere. I don't know whether it's a sick, twisted joke or if it's a call to action. So I want to remind everybody to be prepared to save your own life. And then the news coverage about it was not critical at all. It's hard to believe this is actually a thing, and I'm reporting on this to tell you about it this morning. A group of men on the popular social media app called TikTok have declared April 24th as National Rape Day. That's right. You heard me. But when April 24th rolled around, nothing happened. And a very similar phenomenon occurred later in 2021 with National School Shooting Day on December 17th. It seems you've started because there was some reported video to a school administrator. And then once the school posted about it on Facebook and the local law enforcement posted about it on Facebook, it became this game of telephone of just be careful, you should know. The TikTok challenge encourages students to make threats against their school, and it's supposed to happen today. Ultimately, some reports noted that the Department of Homeland Security and local police believed these threats were totally unfounded. But by the time December 17th rolled around, the panic had spread too far. Schools are canceled in California, Texas, Missouri, and Minnesota. I've seen a dozen kids come into the front office here at this particular school location today feared for their lives. It's a little scary. I don't really want to go to school tomorrow, though. It seems like one of the themes here is that news reports claiming that teens are going to do something on a certain day nationwide probably isn't going to come to fruition. And another theme in the coverage that I've noticed is a reliance on police sources, which brings us to the third in my taxonomy of TikTok panics, what I'm calling the local crime panic. I call it copaganda. A new TikTok challenge has Maslin residents understandably upset. Hey, Kool-Aid! Inspired by old Kool-Aid commercials being reported across the country, Maslin police posted this warning on Facebook about young people busting through fences, causing thousands of dollars in damages. Brandy, there were reports like this in New York, Idaho, and Ohio. Palmer Hosh, a reporter for Insider, reached out to TikTok, and the company told her there was no evidence that videos of this so-called Kool-Aid Man challenge ever existed on the app. My best guess is that local police, who, by the way, are not experts in youth culture, were basing this idea off of videos of drunken adult men busting through drywall, which have been circulating online for years. Oh, no. Oh, no. And by the way, I found tons of news reports about this same form of vandalism that predate TikTok by years. Here's one from 2011. James Tidwell has had it with the female fence crashers. With the help of police, he installed some hidden cameras. And look what those cameras caught. At midnight Sunday, it shows two teens body slamming the vinyl fence, taking several sections down. Oh my God. This hidden camera actually caught another teen urinating in the neighbor's driveway, then struggling to get her pants back on before making a mad dash for the fence. And then now she's peeing. How is this the news? (laughs) I'm sorry, it's too much. I think it's fair to say TikTok did not create this problem. 
Another thing that I'm picking up on from these examples is that TikTok, because it's the hot platform, it sort of allows journalists to put a fresh coat of paint on an old trend, intentionally or not. Yes, exactly. Which brings me to the last category in my taxonomy, uh, what I'm calling the PSA panic. It follows a common format. First, there's a frightening anecdote, which is linked to what's described as an internet trend, followed by an expert saying, this is dangerous, don't let your kids do this, and a conclusion that you should have a conversation with your kids about what they're doing and seeing online. Like the so-called dry-scooping challenge, meaning eating pre-workout supplements without dissolving them in water. A Tennessee woman experiences the dangerous consequences of this whole new social media TikTok challenge. All right, guys, so I had a heart attack, as most of you guys know, from taking this Redcon 1 Total War. This was a fad prior to TikTok. I've been able to find YouTube videos and posts on fitness websites dating back to 2019. But none of the recent reports that I've seen really spell that out or tell us how common this is. Much like my last example, what's known as the blackout challenge. A 12-year-old boy is on life support after his parents say he may have tried a social media challenge. There's a new TikTok challenge putting teenagers at risk, so we want to talk about it. It's called the blackout challenge. The blackout challenge. This is where you hold your breath until you pass out. I, I save this example for last because it's the most disturbing and sensitive. And I want to be clear that even just one child committing this type of self-harm is too many. But much of the recent TV coverage I've seen on this tends to focus on like a couple anecdotes without really addressing the context, which is that the choking game, as it's sometimes called, has been around since as early as the 1930s. The CDC found that about 82 kids have died from this between 1995 and 2007. And it's definitely possible social media has supercharged those numbers since. But without good investigative journalism or more academic research, we can only speculate. Which is one of my main points in this taxonomy. As journalists, we need to be clear about the scale of a given harm or threat. And if we don't know, we need to make that clear too. But more often than not, these reports just leave so much open to the imagination. I agree, Micah, but we shouldn't go easy on TikTok either. Conspiracy theories, extremist content, and misinformation, they travel extraordinarily fast on that app, and TikTok hasn't made it clear that they have a great handle on tamping it down. It's the most aggressive algorithm I've ever seen when it comes to recommendations. Ryan Broderick. It's the most remixable platform I've ever seen. It's the fastest, most mobile platform I've ever seen. And so the damage that you can do with it is on a different level. And I imagine TikTok and academics are like studying these phenomena. And perhaps as the national attorney's general investigation into the platform ramps up, there will be, you know, lots more discussion about the particular harms of TikTok. But as a news consumer, I think it's really important that we all kind of take a deep breath and recognize that we've been here before. It's this cycle that seems to repeat all over again from the printing press to the radio to video games to smartphones and social media. Dr. Amy Orban leads the digital mental health program at the University of Cambridge. She studied how throughout history, adults have routinely blamed new tech for undesirable behavior in kids. I actually came across one paper by a researcher called Mary Preston, who in the 1940s published a piece around children's reactions to the radio, which was just kind of really increasing in popularity in American society. And she noted that over half of the children she studied were becoming addicted to the radio and that was having an impact on their body and their health. And they were using this addiction as an alcoholic does drink. WNYC's archivist Andy Lancet was kind enough to dust off this incredible broadcast from 1947. Oh, this is so cool. Are you telling me, Mrs. Barbarian, the children from the ages of 8 through 12 stay up to listen to the radio after 9.30, especially during the school week? Shocking as this may seem, Mrs. Cosmides, the unfortunate fact is that there are many parents who, to the detriment of the health and well-being of their children, do permit them to do just that. After the moral panic around radio, there was one about comic books in the 1950s, which was powered by some pretty familiar, sensational news reports. Well, what about the effect of these comic books on the children? 
Uh, all of our testimony from psychiatrists and uh, children themselves show that it's very upsetting, that it has a bad moral effect, and that it is directly responsible for a substantial amount of juvenile delinquency and child crime. That's amazing. There are even Senate hearings featuring psychiatrist Friedrich Wortham, whose research isn't exactly held in high esteem nowadays. I hate to say that, Senator, but uh, I think uh, Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry. They get the children much younger. They teach them race hatred at the age of four before they can read. Whoa. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. No, it's wild. So Friedrich Wertham wrote about comic books that the issue is, and I quote, chronic stimulation, temptation, and seduction are contributing factors to many children's maladjustments. And then only a couple of years later, you have the television and certain movies like Superman being seen as exactly the same thing. We see people using a whole new technology and we see something else we really care about. And then we link the two, whether that's social media and mental health or uh, video games and aggression. And one big problem with this cycle, says Amy Orban, is that the technological development and public discourse tend to move way faster than the scientific community. Because scientific evidence is so slow to accumulate, we never really get to any real concrete you know, policy outcomes until the next technology comes around that people are more concerned about and they just forget the previous technology. And as she points out, a new technology is always going to be the easiest scapegoat. You know, if we put aside social media for a second, nowadays there are so many ways of explaining why young people may be behaving in a certain way. You know, root causes, any number of socioeconomic factors. Maybe um, their parents aren't around because they're working multiple jobs. Maybe they're stressed out about school shootings and, you know, having spent two plus years of remote learning. I mean, Brandy, your parent, fill in the rest of the list. Why kids behave the way they do? Yeah. Oh, God, I don't know. I just have the kids. I don't understand them. (laughs) None of us do. But I think that's your point, right? To look at any technology and say, there's the reason. That's that's a wild thing to do. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, let's distill it down. When listeners encounter stories about dangerous trends on TikTok, what should they look out for? One, are these reports giving you actual examples of the so-called trend? Two, do the journalists offer some kind of data about how big of a trend this is? Three, if the story says young people are being harmed by this, is there evidence this is happening beyond just a couple anecdotes? And four, is this so-called trend really new? If you give it a quick Google, you'll probably find out like in five minutes. Micah, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up how a Tennessee nurse unwittingly became the face of a global anti-vax campaign. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brandi Zadrasny, filling in this week for Brooke Gladstone. As we just heard Micah say, one of the hurdles to understanding our current internet ecosystem is that we can't ever fully examine the latest phenomena before it's been eclipsed by the next one. My colleagues and I on the misinformation beat were constantly overwhelmed with leads and tips about new conspiracy theories and older ones that just won't die. Most of the time, all we can do is try to shine a light on something and hope for the best. We're really putting out fires here. There just isn't enough time before we have to move on to the next urgent thing. And that's how I came to spend the last year of my life reporting for a new podcast series called Truthers. The plan is to take the time to go deep and show authoritatively what's true and what isn't, and what happens when we get those things confused. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from the first season, which is all about a woman named Tiffany Dover, a regular person whose life became a weapon in a global information war. It's a story that begins, ironically enough, in a moment of hope. Moderna announcing today its vaccine is nearly 95% effective. It's December 2020, and finally, we have a COVID vaccine. Healthcare workers get the first doses. The local news stories and live streams are all the same. It's hope, 
on repeat. A nurse sanitizes her hands, puts on gloves, swabs a shoulder, the needle goes in, the needle goes out, a Band-Aid, and cheers. On the 17th, the vaccine comes to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Local news stations are covering the scene inside the Catholic Health Initiative's Memorial Hospital. Everybody calls it CHI Memorial. They're live streaming on Facebook, and thousands of people are watching. Sleeve comes up, swab, needle in, needle out, cheers. Next up is a nurse manager. She's wearing navy blue scrubs. This is Tiffany Dover. She's got wide electric blue eyes, this long, straight, dark brown hair, and she parts it to the left. She takes the open seat. She folds her hands neatly in her lap. Her sleeve comes up, swab, needle in, needle out, cheers. A handful of other employees get their shots on camera, and then three of the newly inoculated doctors speak to the assembled reporters. It's important that those of us who have been trained for this set the example. Things seem to be winding down when someone behind the camera asks whether the reporters would like to hear from a hospital administrator. Or nurse. Or nurse, someone says. Tiffany Dover walks back in front of the cameras. Okay. My name is Tiffany Dover, and I am the manager in CCU. Tiffany starts taking questions from reporters. When you woke up this morning, did you know you were going to be receiving the vaccine? I did, yes. So, you know, all of my staff, um, we are excited to get the vaccine, you know. Um, Then it happens. And I know that um, it's really... I'm sorry, I'm feeling really dizzy. Oh, I'm sorry. Tiffany places her hand on her forehead and then turns away from the microphone. Then she faints. Some doctors are there to catch her, and they help her to the floor. Within a few minutes, Tiffany is back on her feet, recovered, surrounded by reporters, and she's explaining what happened. So I had a syncopal episode. Syncopal episode is the medical term for fainting. Um, I have a history of having an overactive um, vagal response. She's describing a reflex where your blood pressure suddenly drops and you get dizzy and you pass out. It can be triggered by lots of things. Physical pain, emotional distress, dehydration, sometimes just standing up too long. It happens to some people a lot more often than others. And so with that, um, if I have pain from anything, hangnail or if I stub my toe, I can just pass out. So... Um, what happened is I started getting, I get an aura before of feeling weak, dizzy, disoriented, um, and it just, you know, hit me all of a sudden. Um, just felt really diaphoretic, and I could feel it coming on, so I felt a little disoriented, but I feel fine now, and the pain in my arm is very minimal, actually, but it doesn't take much. So you feel fine now? I feel fine now. And this is, you know, I have passed out probably six times in the past six weeks. You know, I, it's common for me. Okay. It goes on like this. Tiffany keeps saying this is about her, not the vaccine. No regret taking the vaccine? No, no. I mean, like I said, a hangnail can cause me to have this. By the end of the day on December 17th, the Tiffany Dover story was getting all kinds of traction. I haven't even gotten to the main story today, which is just such an illustration of where we're at, where a nurse is cheering. On the 18th, she even made it onto InfoWars, the internet show started by Alex Jones that's one of the main clearinghouses for conspiracy theories. She's like, yay, I'm getting the vaccine. It's so great. And then, boom, they hit her with the vaccine. She literally passes out, falls over. And they have to take her to an ICU. <laughs> I mean, There's I- no evidence that she went to the ICU or needed any medical treatment at all. But the story began to evolve radically. All the way from, check out this nurse who was injured by the shot, to, check out this nurse who died from it. YouTube creators around the world made videos about Tiffany. Tiffany They racked up millions of views and shares. One guy in Italy made a music video. After the initial round of videos showing Tiffany's faint, posters started to get more creative, compiling so-called evidence to back their claims. They also began to collaborate, moving into something that researchers call participatory disinformation. It's where they piggyback off one another's work. On the first day, 
you just see the ripped video from the newscast. It's literally just that. Nurse faints, you put it on YouTube. The second day, the third day, now they're reacting to how the hospital reacts. Now they're going to cut pieces together, splice old pictures from social media. Three days after the event at CHI, a man named Joe Leonard made a video about it. So I started diving down this rabbit hole trying to figure out what's the truth of the matter, what's going on here. He's an online game developer and software engineer from Annapolis. He's also a prolific YouTuber. This is from his first video about Tiffany. As far as I'm concerned, it appears to me that she actually did die. The evidence that Leonard was relying on here was something simple. Tiffany had been someone who posted to social media nearly every single day. Her last few posts were proud pics of her new Jeep, a collage of nursing colleagues, a video of a pizza and milkshake state to celebrate her daughter's 13th birthday. Now, she'd stopped posting entirely. Thousands of people posted new comments to her pages. She didn't answer a single one. She went dark. If a woman is not on social media for five or six days, I mean, come on. The other piece of evidence that she died? Screenshots. Supposedly of a death record found on a data broker website. Here's one of the most popular YouTube videos that made that claim. Okay, just so you see this with your own eyes, let's put Tiffany Dover in here. This is searchquarry.com. And we're going to look for record type death. All states search. Okay. Tiffany Dover, number 12. Tiffany Dover, 30 years old. White woman from Alabama. What was the name of her? Tiffany actually does live in Alabama, just over the Tennessee line. It's about an hour's drive from the hospital. But the death records were bogus. These sites are basically people search engines. And when you put a name in the box like Tiffany Dover, the first page you get back is an ad asking you to buy a report suggesting that there are all kinds of records available for the person, including death records. When you click on the report and buy it, the records that you were looking for aren't always there. And in Tiffany's case, there was no death record. Truther screenshotted that first page and claimed that was some kind of record. It wasn't. By the way, if you're trying that search at home right now, it's not going to work. A lot of the data broker sites just deleted Tiffany's whole profile after all this happened. A separate issue is that on some of the sites, anybody can create a record for anybody else. Dozens of fact-checking organizations put out articles debunking the death claims. Reuters, the AP, PolitiFact, FactCheck.org, Pointer, USA Today, India Today, Le Monde in France, Estadal Verifica in Brazil. You get the picture. This claim is false. The hospital says they want to clear up rumors circulating online. Nurse Tiffany is alive and well. and the hospital But all of that fact-checking didn't resolve the issue. Actually, it got arguably worse. In the days and weeks that followed, truthers started scraping all of Tiffany's social media profiles. They took her photos and videos. That included hundreds of photos and videos of her children. They also expanded their investigations. They included Tiffany's husband and in-laws. Literally any family members with public profiles became fair game. They accused them of being in on some kind of cover-up. Truthers called Tiffany's hospital repeatedly. One of them, a guy named Jimmy Poole, he recorded himself and set it to dramatic music. We reached out to him. He didn't get back to us. I'm a citizen journalist. Okay. The only thing we can tell you about Tiffany is just go to the memorial website, okay? Is, uh, is she still alive? I can tell you, just go to the memorial website. Well, can, can you tell me if she's alive or not? No, sir. She's not alive, or you cannot tell me? Other truthers suggested going to Chattanooga to get answers. At least one guy did. People might find this crazy, but I'm in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'm standing in front of the Chai Memorial Hospital. That's Jason Goodman. He makes crowdsource the truth. It's an internet show. A federal judge who ruled against him this year in a copyright case said he, quote, trafficked in wild conspiracy theories. His videos, like the ones exploring so-called false flags around the Las Vegas mass shooting and the Sandy Hook massacre, have gotten him banned from YouTube at least five times. I just <clears throat> followed some directions, went to the information desk. Security guy basically told me to get the hell out of there. I did not from the start, the hospital had been cast as a major suspect in the Tiffany story. 
To truthers, every move CHI Memorial made reeked of a cover-up. Two days after Tiffany fainted, CHI Memorial issued a tweet that read, quote, Nurse Tiffany Dover appreciates the concern shown for her. She is home and doing well. She asks for privacy for her and her family. Conspiracy theorists were not satisfied. They called the hospital staff liars and demanded they post a photo of Tiffany holding up the day's newspaper, like you do with hostages. And two days later, the hospital actually tried. They put out a video, which is what you're hearing now. But the thing is, no one speaks except for a few people off camera. The video is 21 seconds long and shows Tiffany at the foot of a staircase. She's wearing maroon scrubs, a white vest, and a pin that reads, I'm vaccinated against COVID-19. Posing around her are 20 coworkers. They're wearing hospital badges. A few look to be nervously giggling, but it's tough to tell because everyone's wearing those blue surgical face masks, including Tiffany. Four of the women are holding signs with the date, December 21st, 2020, and messages of support like, Nursing Leadership Supports Tiffany. Christmas garland hangs from the staircase. Behind them, there's a photo of the Pope. It's a strange video to watch. And the fact that Tiffany appeared but didn't speak? Naturally, it just made matters worse. And they have this woman that is not only about 25 pounds heavier than Tiffany is, but her, her hair is different or the part in her hair is different. They were a reasonable person might look at this video and think, okay, poor lighting, different camera angle. But truthers decided that it was proof. Clear proof that the hospital and an ever-expanding list of co-conspirators, including drug manufacturers, the government, the media, the Catholic Church, had used a body double to cover up Tiffany's death. The hair is totally different. You see how it lays flat? Hair lays flat. Tiffany's got some swoop-de-doop action. You see this? She got the swoop-de-doop going up here. Her eyebrows look really different. It makes you wonder if people maybe went to an extreme to make it seem like she's okay and she's really not. Is her family being paid to be quiet? Is other things going on? The real um, Tiffany's eyes, which are blue, by the way, have a fleshy part that points, curls down towards her nose, as you'll see here. The other girl doesn't. And they made channels on YouTube and Telegram, and they made groups on Facebook. They created fake Instagram profiles and websites like whereistiffanydover.com. CHI Memorial's video was like throwing chum in the water. Jason Goodman, the truther who went to the hospital, told me he knows where they went wrong. If there was a, a, a ton of conspiracy theories swirling about me, Jason Goodman, I would go on the YouTube channel and I would say, hey, I'm fine, everybody. You saw me pass out on the news. No big deal. I'm totally fine. Why wouldn't they just put out something definitive with her speaking with the hospital administrator? We're here to squash the internet conspiracy theories, the QAnon trolls, the morons out there. Why haven't we seen that video? Serious question for you, Brandy. Don't you agree that it's strange? Of course, that seems like a fair point. But what it does, it takes all the responsibility and all the blame off the truthers and puts it onto Tiffany and her employers. We'll stop harassing you if you just do what we're asking. And if you don't, we're entitled to keep going. Imagine for a moment that you're Tiffany Dover. How would you handle being the main character in that kind of conspiracy theory? Would you talk to the national media? Or would you try to squash the rumors yourself? Would you post a video to your social media account or go live and answer questions in real time? Would you fight back in the comments? Would you report the videos and posts for harassment? File copyright claims against people posting your photos to get them taken down? Or maybe you'd say, the hell with all of this, and delete the Facebook page and the Instagram account where truthers continue to post about you. Whatever you think you would do, I don't think you can really know until it happens to you. And it could. Conspiracy theories these days are more often centered around ordinary people, not Queen Elizabeth or Hillary Clinton or George Soros but nurses and election workers and pizza shop owners. People like Tiffany Dover. People probably like you. People with absolutely like no conceivable public profile get drawn into this stuff and they are not ready for it. I talked to Anna Merlin, a senior staff writer at Vice. She's the author of Republic of Lies, a book about American conspiracy theory communities, and she's covered a lot of stories like Tiffany's. 
ordinary people who are made the center of conspiratorial claims often go through the same type of process, where at first they say, like, this is a misunderstanding and I can explain it. And then they start to realize that anything they do sort of feeds into the pattern of harassment and what feels like invasive communications from these folks. That feeling, like appealing to the truthers could be a rational course, I feel that all the time. I can't help but be tempted by their constant refrains of like, just show us right. this thing and then, you know, we'll all go away and you can have your right. lovely Instagram back and your family can go on a vacation without like any posted picture being part of this grand conspiracy. Um, but of course but- they won't, will they? Because if she does a video, it'll be, you know, that's not Tiffany. Look at her face. Her face is different. She seems unwell. She's talking like she had a stroke. Like anything she does will feed into it. And I am certain that we will see that if she decides to make a video. And that is really unfortunate, but it is true. Finding the truth and getting through to the people who need to hear it, it's complicated. In five episodes, I tried to tell the story of how this single lie traveled from Chattanooga through the rest of the world propelled by conspiracy theorists in a thriving anti-vaccine industry. In the end, I relearned that facts can only take you so far. Still, I hope you'll agree, the truth was worth the pursuit. And I hope you'll check out season one of Truthers. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candice Wong, Suzanne Gaber, and Max Bolton. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Andrew Nerviano and Adrian Lilly. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. I'm Brandi Zadrosny. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.